And please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. I'd like to read the last portion of Mark 11, when our Lord Jesus Christ is in the temple, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the chief priests are all piling up on him. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse number 27. Mark chapter 11 and verse 27. Here's what we read. Mark 11:27. Then they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves saying, If we say, from heaven he will say why then did you not believe him but if we say from men they feared the people for all counted John to be have been a prophet indeed so they answered and said to Jesus we do not know and Jesus answered and said to them neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things very interesting passage of scripture and this section of Mark's gospel is really what we would easily call the last steps of the greatest journey on earth. The greatest journey on earth is the journey that our Lord Jesus Christ took from heaven down to Bethlehem through 33 and a half years on this earth to the old rugged cross down to the tomb up in the resurrection ascended to seat at the right hand of God the Father, where he now makes intercession for us, only to come again one day and set up his kingdom and establish a new heaven and a new earth. That surely is the greatest journey of all. And in Mark chapter 11, we are taking the last steps of his journey on earth between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. Between the time that he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey so humbly to offer himself as king of the Jews to the time when he arose up from the grave in the resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. That's where we are in Mark chapter 11. And last week, if you were with us on Sunday morning, I outlined a little bit of what happened after our Lord Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem and he went into the temple. He went into the temple to pray and he ended up being in the temple to purge it or to cleanse it. And you might remember in Mark chapter 11, he drove out the money changers. You can see that in verses 15 to 18 where our Lord Jesus Christ is driving the money changers out of the temple. We said last week we should all gain some perspective on this as we consider that the New Testament says Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And so there should be a lot more prayer going on in our temple, and we should certainly cleanse it and purify it in the same way that our Lord Jesus Christ, before he did his great work, cleansed or purified the temple. And you may not be ready for the things that God has in store for you because your body or your mind or your heart are filled with sin or unrighteousness. You have to be pure in order to serve the Lord. So tonight we come to the end of Mark chapter 11. Here we have the Lord Jesus Christ back in the temple again. And tonight's message is going to have two equal points. The first is they tried to impeach the Prince of Peace. That's what they're doing at the end of Mark 11, verses 27 and following. They are trying to impeach the Prince of Peace who came and gave himself for their sins. And then you'll see two pointed questions. A question from the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, and that whole crowd. And then a question from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's start with them trying to impeach the Prince of Peace. I use the word impeach because it's familiar to you, hopefully. A few months ago, we heard a great deal of the United States about impeachment. You probably know that it means to accuse someone of wrongdoing. It means to try and point out their wrongdoing or their misdeeds or their bad action. It's to call into question or to make an accusation against a person. And that's exactly what's happening at the end of Mark chapter 11. And in fact, you can follow it all the way through Mark chapter 12. And you'll see that they are trying to impeach the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. I'm not using the word impeach to draw any connection between our lovely Lord Jesus Christ and the President of the United States of America. So let's look at how they are trying to impeach him. You can see that they first pounce on him. That's in verse number 27. Now it looks so innocent. Verse 27 says, They came to him as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. They came to him. And you can follow through the 12th chapter and just look at the number of times that they pounce on him in just a few verses. Look over in chapter 12, verse 13. Chapter 12, verse 13. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. Again, pouncing on him, piling on him. Look further in chapter 12, verse 18. Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, came to him. And they asked him. And you can read the interaction there with the Sadducees. And you just keep going down into verse number 28 of the 12th chapter. Then one of the scribes came to him, having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well and asked him, which is the first commandment of all. They are all piling on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're pouncing on him. And... Our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the third time that he's in the temple in just three days. He went in on Palm Sunday, just looked around and left. That's earlier in the 11th chapter. Then you can see uh, he came in the next day to cleanse the temple. And now, according to verse number 20 of chapter 11 and verse number 27, it's the next day he's in Jerusalem again and he's back in the temple. And they're just waiting for him. 
waiting to pile on him and pounce him and pound him down into the pavement. And I'd like to talk briefly to those of you who have been in the same situation in life. It's unpleasant, it's unkind, it's unfair. But some of you have been in this situation where you said something on day one or did something on day one and maybe it was as innocent as something at school when you were a schoolboy or a schoolgirl and you said something that somebody didn't like or you did something that they didn't like or they perceived that you did something that they didn't like and they said, you just wait until after school. And as soon as you came out the doors of the school, there they were waiting for you or they were down behind the bus or they were down the street just waiting for you to walk home or they jumped out from some bush somewhere. And it gets no better the older that you get. People are just as conniving and just as mischievous as adults. You say something in church that they don't like, or you do something at work that they don't like, or you do something, and there they are the next time that you encounter them, and they're just waiting for you. There they are at the door. There they are on the other end of the phone. There they are with some fiery email. They're just waiting to pounce on you. And if you have ever been in that unfortunate situation with a whole bunch of immature people just piling on you and pounding you down and down, it certainly happens when we try to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven forbid that you open your mouth anywhere in this city and talk about Jesus, and they just all pile right on you as though you've done something wrong. Many of you have been in that situation in life, and Jesus knows all about it. He has cleansed the temple the day before. He has ridden in on a donkey and proclaimed himself king of the Jews the day before that. And now on the third day when he steps and dares to step foot and show his face in that temple, they are just waiting for him. And what irritates me the most about verse number 27 is not just their pouncing on the Lord, but the hypocrisy of their pounce. It says in verse 27, they came to him, they came to him, he was walking in the temple, they walked up to him. It all seems so innocent. But look just for an example back at verse number 18 and see the hypocrisy. It doesn't say in verse 27 that they came with pitchforks or that they had daggers or that they had evil in their eyes as they approached him. But look at what verse 7, 18 says of Mark 11, verse 18. The scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. You can only imagine the fury or flurry of activity that took place after he had driven out the money changers. If they had cell phones and smartphones in that day, they would have all had them out recording him as he turned over the tables and drove the money changers. It would have gone viral before he even got back to Bethany for supper. But it did spread very quickly through the Sanhedrin, that religious, rich order of very powerful men, of scribes and elders and Pharisees and uh, uh, chief priests, as they would have quickly ran to one another, saying, you won't believe what he's up to now. You won't imagine what he just did in the temple. Who does he think he is? He's got to be stopped. 
And they had all of these secret meetings that night going back and forth between each other, deciding what they would do and how they would destroy him and ruin him and bring him to his knees. And so when you come to verse 27, and it's the next day, and he's walking through the temple, and they used to walk and teach at that time. They didn't sit or stand like we do. They would walk and talk with the people. And they come over and ask a question which seems to be a very reasonable question. They seem to ask it in a very reasonable way. There's no hatred seen in verse number 27, and yet you know that there's hatred in their heart. Verse 18 has shown you their desire to destroy him, and the hypocrisy of their coming is so unbelievable. And yet it happens all the time. People come so nicely and so sweetly to you. They act as though they have your best intentions in mind or they really want to know something, but you know they're up to no good. And you've probably seen them before. They've been waiting for you at at your door. They've come into church and you just know that they are up to no good. And they have you in their sights. And this kind of dirty double-talk, underhanded, two-faced behavior from these religious rulers is totally unacceptable. Now, I am, to give them some credit, I am pleased to see in verse 27 that they come to Christ. I mean, if you have a problem with somebody, that's exactly what you're supposed to do, is you're supposed to go to that person. You're not supposed to stay home and grow bitter and hateful towards them. You're not supposed to send somebody else to do your dirty work for you. You're supposed to go and speak to that person exactly what they do here. But that's as far as I can give them any credit for. Because it goes quickly downhill from there. Because as we all know, when we approach somebody that we have a problem with, we're not supposed to approach them with any kind of a phony, two-faced, double-minded sort of attitude we're supposed to be sincere and loving and kind and thoughtful and respectful and yet they wanted nothing more to do than to hurt christ and hang him on the cross so they pounced and the hypocrisy of their pounce as they tried to impeach the prince of peace If this has ever happened to you and you feel that everybody's piling on you, and sometimes the devil can make it seem that the whole world is piling on top of you, when it's only one or two or three people. I'm sure as Eve met the devil in the Garden of Eden and he constantly berated her and tempted her, she must have felt like the whole world was closing in on her. And that's sometimes how it feels when people are piling in on you. I'd like to give you one great verse that I've always found very helpful when it seems like the world is piling in on a person. Look back with me, if you would please, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here's a great verse if you feel that the world's against you and nobody's on your side and you haven't done anything wrong and they don't understand. 2 Timothy chapter 4 is the Apostle Paul near the end of his life. He's in a Roman prison. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he talks about his time in court before the Roman Empire. And it must have seemed like the whole Roman Empire was coming down on him and wanted his blood. 
And listen to what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. And he says earlier, and you can look from verses 9 and following, all his buddies there, Demas had forsaken him in verse 9, having loved this present world. Uh, Cretans had gone to Galatia. Titus was in Dalmatia. He said, they're all out in far off places. And when I stood in court, and those lawyers and the emperor and the Roman generals were all coming down and saying this against me and that against me and something else against me, and it was just all lies and, and, and made up uh, falsehoods. He says, I was there all by myself, and it seems like the world was closing in on me. But look at verse 17, and here's the verse for you. If you feel like you're being piled on top of, like at a football game, Verse 17, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. What a great message is the world's piling in on you if you're in the right now if you're in the wrong you better pay attention but if you're in the right and you know that you haven't done anything wrong the lord is on your side he's there with you let them say what they say let them do what they'll do let them pile on and more pile on you've got the lord and one day you're going to be standing in his glorious kingdom and he'll be singing to you forever he'll never leave you He'll never forsake you, even when it seems like everybody's piling on you. Now let's go back to Mark Mark 11. Look at two pointed questions as they tried to impeach the Prince of Peace. Pointed question number one comes from the Sanhedrin or that group of chief priests, elders, and scribes as they come to Christ in the temple. And they ask him this pointed question in verse 28 of Mark 11. By what authority do you do these things? And who gave you the authority to do these things? He had come into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they all sang his praises. They had implored him to save them now, Hosanna, as they basically worship him. And the next day, he made a whip, and he drove the money changers out of the temple. And these men are basically saying, who do you think you are? Who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority to come in here and act like this? This is a tremendous question. And all of us should take a few moments and make sure that we ask this question of ourselves. Who gave us the right to do what we are doing? Who gave us the authority to say what we have said? Who gave us the permission to live our lives the way we live our lives each day? And in many cases, we will have to say, it wasn't the Lord. I didn't pray about it. I didn't read the Bible. I didn't ask a good Christian. I just went about and did my own thing, my own business, my own way. And I gave myself the right to treat myself to this, to do this, to go there. And woe to us if we don't have the authority of God behind us and with us and protecting us. We need to ask ourselves, who gave us the right to talk to that person that way, to go to those places, to be involved in those things? 
if the Lord didn't send us, then maybe we shouldn't have gone. And maybe we should change our life and consider, where did I get the right to live the way that I'm living? We need to pray and search the scriptures and make sure that God has called us and God has equipped us and God approves of what we're doing. Now, in Jesus' case, we know the answer. There were only really a few possible answers to this question. They asked him pointedly, who gave you the right to come into this temple? Who gave you the right to drive out the money changers? Who gave you the right to let these people basically worship you with hosannas? He could have said, uh, you men gave me the right. You're the leaders here. One of you said that I could do all of this. Well, if he said something like that, they could accuse him of lying because they all knew that none of them had put him up to this. If he said, I just took it upon myself. I gave myself the right. I got up this morning and I said, I'm going to go do this and take care of this. Well, then they could accuse him of arrogance. Who was he to think that he should do this in the temple of God? And if he said, God gave me the right, then they could accuse him of blasphemy because they felt that they knew the will of God and they didn't believe that God would ever give anybody the right to come in and act like that in their temple. And so they felt they had him. But he's a lot smarter than they are. He's a lot smarter than you are and I am. And sometimes you think that you've got it all figured out or we think we've got it all figured out. We, we can tell God this or we, we've figured out the answer to that. God knows everything and he can see right through us and right through our little arguments and our little behaviors and we're not fooling anyone. And they weren't fooling anyone. And so he asked them a pointed question. They ask him, what authority do you have to do these things? And rather than answering their question, he answers their question with a question. And he asks them pointedly in verse 29, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. He asks them a he answers their question with a question because he knows that the answer to his question is the same as the answer to their question. So if they will answer his question, they will have the answer to their question because both answers to both questions are the same. And it has to do with authority. And he asked them about the authority of John the Baptist, who had just recently been beheaded and who had worked and moved in their midst for many years. Where did John get his authority? You answer that question, and you'll know the answer to your question, where did I get my authority? Now all of a sudden he has quickly turned the tables on them, and they're now huddling together and mentally trying to come up with some answer because they admit here they knew where John got his authority. But if they said John got his authority from God, then they said, if we say that, Jesus will say, then why didn't you believe John? Because none of them were baptized. They weren't in the River Jordan being baptized. So they say, 
if we say John didn't get his authority from God, then all these people who know that John got his authority from God will call us liars. And so look at what they say. They, they think they're so smart in verse 33. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. So you won't answer our question? We're not going to answer your question. But this is a lie. They did know where John got his authority from. So they know the truth, but they're not willing to admit the truth. And so Jesus says, then I'm not going to answer your question either. You want to answer mine? And now it's not just a, he's not being a nuisance here. He's not answering their question because the answer is now blatantly obvious to everybody. Everybody knew where John got his authority. It came right from God. They saw the, uh, the dove descend and light on the Lord Jesus Christ as John baptized him. Everybody knew that John had come under the inspiration and authority of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says, the point is obvious. John got his authority from God. I got my authority from God. I don't have to answer your question because it's a moot point. It's obvious God gave John his authority. God gave me his authority, the authority to do what I'm doing. But let's end by asking ourselves very slightly this question, very quickly, briefly this question. Are there other times in life where people know the truth, but they won't admit it? I mean, here are these men. They know clearly where Christ got his authority, clearly where John got his authority, and yet they will not admit it. For example, the Bible says clearly that homosexuality is wrong. It's not right for men to be with men or women to be with women. And yet many people won't admit it. They will dance around the issue in every way that they think to try and come up with some answer to make it right, and it's wrong. And it will always be wrong. Now the same thing, the Bible teaches that hell is real and that there is a lake of fire beneath us and people go there and suffer forever. And yet people won't admit it. They won't admit that they are in danger of hell and that not everybody goes to heaven. It's the same with creation. The Bible clearly teaches that in six days God created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them, and yet they won't admit it. They say that we evolved and that we, we came from this and we came from that. No, God created us, and people just won't admit it. Now, here's something else that sometimes people have a hard time believing. God loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love, and that will never change. He has loved you from the moment that you were born, all the time that your mother held you, right through school and into every aspect of your life. God loves you. And yet some people have such a hard time believing that. How could God love somebody like me? Why would God love somebody like me? I've disappointed him so many ways and hurt him. And I'm so full of sin. And yet God loves you. The Bible says it. He loves the whole world. And you're part of the world. You can put your name right in there. God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that if you would believe on him, you'd never perish because of God's great love and his gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. So many things that are true that people just won't admit. And here's another one. All of your sins are forgiven in Christ. Every one of them. You might think that one of them is too big or that God forgot about it or that somehow it's going to come back and haunt you. It is gone forever. It's under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been washed away. No matter what you've done, 
And no person on earth should be able to hold that against you. You are free and free forevermore from the sins that you have committed if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, I don't believe that. I know there's so many things in life that people don't believe. They're so true and so clear, and yet the world won't admit it. And I hope that you'll take God's word and you will search the scriptures and find what is true and believe it with all of your heart. Well, today we've seen the Lord Jesus Christ in the temple and they're trying to impeach the Prince of Peace. They're lining up against him, hurling insults and accusations and charges against him. They ask him pointed questions. And though they pile on, none of it sticks. He's able to go to sleep with a pure conscience, able to know that he's right with God, and all of this stuff just runs right off of him. That is what is possible when you're right with God. Let them say what they say. Let them do what they do and bring their accusations by the barrel full. You will know in your heart if you have done right, then you have done right. You have said what God wanted you to say. You have done and gone where God wanted you to go. Don't let that guilt and that hurt that they try to pile on to you stick. It doesn't have to. Way back in 1938, there was a man working for the DuPont Company. He was actually working to try and invent a refrigerant. But he felt that he was failing because every time that he tried to invent this refrigerant, the bottles that he kept using would get covered in this white, waxy substance that was very slippery. And to the delight of the people of the DuPont Company, they discovered that almost nothing stuck to this stuff. They called it Teflon. And before long, the Tefal company was putting it all over their cookware. And they were announcing that eggs don't stick to it, and pancakes don't stick to it, and nothing sticks to it. Well, today we saw the Pharisees, and you'll see through chapter 12, the Sadducees and the Herodians, and everybody piling on Christ accusing him of doing this wrong and that wrong and complaining and being upset. None of it stuck to the Lord because he's clean and white and pure and holy. His enemies threw everything they had at him to dishonor, discredit, tarnish, and defile him. But none of it stuck. And if you follow Christ no matter what this person says or thinks, one day a trumpet is going to sound and he's going to call for you and he's going to let you walk on his streets of gold and live in his mansions because in his eyes, you're already clothed in white. You are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And his blood has already washed away everything that you could have ever done wrong. So there's nothing that you have done or said or any place that you've gone that he will ever condemn you for. So long as you believe in this one word, it's a name, and it's the most wonderful name of all, the name of Jesus. Let's pray.